Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 271 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Jack Newton about his book, The Client-Centered Law Firm. Today's podcast is brought to you by Smith AI, Text Expander, LawPay, and Back Office Betties. We wouldn't be able to do our show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. If today's podcast resonates with you and you haven't read our book, The Small Firm Roadmap, yet, you can get the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. So we've just mentioned our book, and we're about to talk with Jack Newton about his new book, The Client-Centered Law Firm. And I just think it's really interesting that for a generation of lawyers, there was essentially only one book in the marketplace for how to learn how to build a small law firm. And then 10 or 15 years ago, Carolyn Elephant wrote essentially the one other book in this space. But then in the last six months... Our book, Jack's new book, Mike Whelan has a book, Tiger Tactics. There have been three or four books finally filling this much-needed gap. Um, And obviously, we're very biased and think ours is is the one to start (laughs) with and the best of them. But honestly, it's just so cool and refreshing that after years and years of there being this big, giant, gaping opportunity to help lawyers with resources for managing small practices, that all of a sudden there's just this tidal wave of cool stuff. I think it's sort of a reflection that the message that many of us, and those of us at Lawyerist in particular, have been trying to spread for years about their, you know, let's take the things we hate about law practice and see if we can find a better way to do things. Um, are finally landing. And it's not just one place that you go to get that message anymore. Um, I think many, many lawyers are starting to realize that, hey, maybe we can do better. And um, and I think that's why we're seeing more of this out there, because that perspective, that mindset is maybe more prominent and, and maybe even starting to permeate the legal industry. Yeah. And I hope we have made it clear all along, but are for sure making clear with this episode that we don't see books as a zero sum <laughs> game. Uh, people people are either book people or they're not book people. And therefore... I mean, if you only read one, probably read ours. <laughs> if you only read our one, make it ours. Yes, exactly. But if you're going to read two or three or four, those are things you should consider too. I think it's also worth noting uh, for people who are concerned about such things that We try to make a really clear distinction on this show between content from sponsors and advertisers and the guests we have kind of editorially on the main interview of the show. And Jack Newton, as the founder and CEO of Clio, lives in a gray area as that's concerned, but because... This conversation is about a book we think many of you are interested in learning about and not about Clio. Um, We decided that it was worth having him on to talk about that book um, rather than about his business. So while Clio remains a sponsor of Lawyerist, this is not a sponsored podcast. It's just a really interesting conversation with somebody who's played an outsized role in shaping the industry and has written down some thoughts about it. And so um, I think you'll enjoy it. 
Uh, before my conversation with Jack, we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Maddie Martin from Smith AI, and then we'll tune in with Jack. Hi, this is Maddie Martin. I'm the head of growth and education for Smith AI Virtual Receptionists. Hi, Maddie. Welcome back. How are you holding up during the pandemic? Uh, doing well. I mean, business is busier <laughs> than usual, as I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah, I imagine there are a lot of lawyers scrambling to um, catch up on all the things that used to be a nice to have, but are now a must have, like virtual receptionists, online tools, um, the stuff that you really can't get by without if you're trying to go remote. Yeah, and the solution is not to forward your calls to the rest of your staff who now are <laughs> taking care of kids at home and you know right. they're they're juggling just as many balls as you are. So let's talk about let's try and get some concrete tips here, um, which are changes that you'll be glad you made that you also are going to be like, you need to make them now because you don't really have a choice if you want to continue with business, but you'll be glad you made them anyway. What do you think are maybe the three tips that you can offer that are just like, go ahead and do them now. You'll be thrilled even after the pandemic has passed. Sure. I mean, it's a funny thing that happens, right? When like push comes to shove and you have to make changes in order to accommodate and you realize, oh man, I could have gotten that done in a 10th of the time I was anticipating for it. Totally. So, so the three things, honestly, besides just virtual receptionist services to handle these incoming calls are online calendaring, um, which can be combined sort of with intake because you can ask a few questions before someone is allowed to book an appointment for you with mm -hmm. the tool at Calendly. That seems like a really good thing to me because like the reason it's useful now is like with everyone working at home, your availability might be on and off, mm -hmm. right? Like I might need to be making lunch for my kids and I can't take the phone call to schedule the appointment. So it's going to be more convenient then. But as just about everybody knows, it's way more convenient anyway to just plug yourself into an online calendar and let people sign up for appointments. It removes barriers and makes those things happen more often. I mean, not only that, but you can also, I mean, to give you sort of like a secret tip, if you have someone put their phone number into Calendly when they're booking time with you and you call them, you don't pay for a receptionist call when they call and hunt down and try and find you, right? So right. why not just streamline that and get them exactly where they need to go by calling that them? That makes good sense. So that's process improvement right there. And then there's e-signature, which makes complete sense and also can automate the reminders. You, you can't be doing in-person closings right now. There's literally like no just, way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But you know what the nice thing is? If you set up your system to automatically remind people who didn't sign the document, you can automatically mm -hmm. chase them too, yeah. virtually. And in a way that, that doesn't sort of get back to you as being a nuisance, really, because it's there's a third party handling the nuisancing. Totally. You have that distance. Yeah. You're, you're not the nuisance creator. I know that some lawyers are, are, gonna, are saying, but, but, but I can't do X kind of e-signing in my state. Mm -hmm. Yes, but... Every state that I'm aware of, and probably by the time this podcast airs most, governors are issuing emergency orders, allowing it, all kinds of remote notarization, all that kind of stuff. Like, you can't be doing in-person signings. It's going to get fixed. Um, so hang in there and make sure that you're ready to do it with with by having e-signing capabilities. Yes, be positioned for it. Absolutely. Um, and then the third thing is e-payments. I mean, if you don't have the ability to take credit <laughs> yeah. cards and get paid, I mean, can you imagine like trying to follow up on bills and calling people and then saying, I'm going to do a drive-by of your house when I'm making my run later for your check, just stand outside in the cold and give it to me. I mean, that's not a real thing, right? Yeah. So maybe it works for pickup food delivery for the restaurants we're supporting right now, but um, it doesn't work for law firms. So just take 
take the freaking credit card. Yeah, and this is one of those things where when there is an objection, often it's around the the fee for the credit card, which just like everything I've ever seen shows that the fee for the credit card you recover easily compared with the number of payments you're more likely to get, right? Like you get paid more often and you get paid faster. <laughs> 20% loss payments versus 2 to 3% fee on the full payment. So that math yeah, is It's not even easy. a question. Yeah. So um, get online calendaring up and running, get online payments up and running, and get e-signatures up and running. If you haven't already, you'll be glad you did even after the pandemic passes. Right. To learn more about working with Smith AI, you can visit smith.ai. That's www.smith.ai. And you can use the code LAWYERS100 to get $100 off your first month, plus 20 calls and 20 chats free during the trial period. You won't even need to hand over your credit card. Again, that's at smith.ai. Maddie, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm Jack Newton, the CEO and founder of Clio. Welcome, Jack. Uh, you've been so busy for the last few years that I think this is the longest you and I will have had to sit down and just chat. So I'm really excited to do this podcast with you. Welcome. I'm excited to be here. And likewise, it feels like a, a long while. So great to great to reconnect. Uh, excited to chat with you. Yeah, it's been 12 years. Clio is over 12 years old, right? That's correct. Isn't that hard to believe? I mean, it is. I When we were prepping for the podcast, I called it 10 because I, I feel like you had just turned 10 and we celebrated 10 around the same time and we were all like, yay, patting each other on the back. But holy crap, 12 years. Exactly. Companies grow up so fast, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of feels like that looking back, doesn't it? Because um, you still, I assume, acutely remember um, developing this thing out of your house and you know, uh, going to trade shows with Ryan and here you are with a multinational hundreds of people company. It's crazy. Yeah, it, it does feel crazy. And, you know, I, I think the almost paradoxically, the, the last 12 years feel like an unbelievably long amount of time and an unbelievably short amount of time at the same, yeah. at the same time, I, I just came back from ABA tech show in Chicago and it was, it was 12 years ago that we, uh, we launched Clio. So on, on one hand, I was wondering, you know, how is this possibly my my 13th tech show? I feel like yeah. one of these <laughs> these grizzled veterans uh, that I used to to run across when we first came. Have you noticed that like there's a new crop of like, <laughs> you know, 20 something bright eyed uh, tech exactly. gurus and, and startup founders and you're like, oh, God, I'm the old guy now. Exactly. And I'm sure you have actually the same feeling, Sam. <laughs> totally. You started coming to tech show around the same time I did. Yeah. Oh, man. Ah, uh, the times. <laughs> exactly. It's this it, has been a wild ride, though, and I've had so much, uh, so much fun, and I'm, uh, you know, incredibly proud and, and and humbled by the the success Cleo's seen over the last twelve years. And I think the craziest part for me is I come into work every day, you know, full of energy, feeling, you know, really like we're still just getting started in terms yeah. of the kind of impact and change we want to have on the. Uh, on the industry. So uh, you've been gathering resources and momentum and and now you've taken all that energy and funneled into a book, Jack. I that's mean, right. That's <laughs> I mean, right. Like it feels somewhat natural to me because I know that, you know, you have designs on more than just building software, but you cannot hope to make any kind of uh, money off the book that in any way compares to the potential of Clio itself. So why why put all that effort and, and attention into a book? Yeah. Well, number one, you're you're 100 right, and I know you're an author of a book as well. No, nobody, 
nobody writes a book to become rich or to make meaningful revenue from it. It's nice to see if that happens, but um, they're not the most profitable things in the world. <laughs> and you're right. I've been, uh, you know, talking about some of the ideas in this book, you know, for a long time. In fact, in the, you know, one of the first uh, tech shows I went to, uh, there was those Ignite talks that that Matt Homan ran. Do you remember those? Yeah, I made fun of him. I teased him about it. And then he, he got really sore about yeah, it. I remember that. And I, I think they were actually like, you know, <laughs> I, I hosted one of those first Ignite talks and talked about the fact that there's an opportunity for uh, lawyers to approach customer service and, and mm-hmm. being client-centered in a new way. So, you know, this is an idea I think I've been building on and, and elaborating on in my own mind over uh, over the last decade. Uh, you've seen me talk about some of these ideas totally. at, yeah. uh, in my keynotes at ClioCon. And I think I felt like, hey, I've gathered up enough ideas and I've seen enough success working with law firms in implementing some of these ideas uh, that I owe it to myself. And, and I actually felt like I owed it to the industry to, you know, to write these ideas down and put them out there for debate and conversation. And as you may know, Sam, you know, our, our mission at Clio is to transform the practice of law for good. And we, we see the software, the software being Clio is just one, one small part of that, that total equation. And the reason we run ClioCon, the reason we put out so much in terms of content and webinars and eBooks and so on, uh, is all in service of that mission of helping like make lawyers be more successful, help them thrive and help them innovate in the way that they're delivering their legal services. And, and that's really at the, at the heart of, of what's in this book, where I feel like we're, we're actually in a, a truly a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in the legal space to really innovate, uh, really change the way that we deliver legal services. And I wanted to put out a, a bit of a rallying cry for this opportunity for a tectonic shift in the legal industry. And, and more than just ideas on what a, a client-centered law firm can and should be, a bit of a handbook in terms of how you actually do that. So that was that was the motivation yeah. behind the book. And um, I know we'll talk about it over the next uh, yeah. next few minutes. So. so Jordan Furlong sets this up in the preface to your book and, and uh, love Jordan and the way he thinks about practice. Um, he's saying, like, imagine a future where Blockbuster realizes that it's not in the business of renting tapes, but in the business of helping people watch movies and and presents a number of examples like that. Because that's where lawyers are right now. And I believe we are, there's an enormous amount of opportunity in in law. And you believe there's a lot of opportunity in law. And yet I go to bar conferences and there's clearly a lot of lawyers who don't think there's a lot of opportunity in law, who think the only opportunity is to close ranks and keep the walls up and don't let anybody else try. And so I'm wondering, like, what is it that makes you think that lawyers can be the innovators here and not the blockbusters? So I I, th- I think the number one being an entrepreneur I'm a I'm a pathological optimist. So <laughs> yeah, same. I mean I wrote I wrote a similar book, right? I, I definitely believe yeah, that too. <laughs> exactly. So I, I really think the opportunity is out there, and I think I think a lot of the opportunity that exists for for lawyers is shifting from what I might consider a you know fixed mindset and a, a growth mindset, uh, and, and this idea of a growth mindset being uh, I think well articulated by by Carol Dweck and her. Her book called Mindset, and and the basic idea is: Do we look at everything as a reason we can't do something, or do we look at opportunity? And do we look at even failing as as an opportunity? And mm-hmm. I, I think you look at the discourse that happens around the legal market, and we often hear words like uh, you know, commodification of legal services. We talk about how scarce clients are, 
And when, when you actually look at the data, and this was, this was the data that for me was one of the most eye-opening and catalyzing moments around building conviction around this idea that there is opportunity for lawyers to innovate. We look at, at one side of the, the marketplace, the legal marketplace where the, the consumers are, and we see the World Justice Project data that 77% of people with legal issues did not have those issues resolved by a lawyer. So it's telling us, you know, number one, that, that clients can't, or potential clients, can't find the, the legal service providers, the lawyers, uh, to help solve their legal challenges. And you look on the, the supply side of the legal services marketplace, you look at the lawyers, and through the legal trends report that we do, we know that 80% of lawyers tell us that the number one thing they need is more clients. Mm -hmm. To me, that is a really interesting almost paradox where any economist would look at that and say, what's broken in this market? How can there possibly be so much <laughs> opportunity on the on the demand side and yet have the supply side not bridging the gap between what it can deliver and and what the what the need in the marketplace is? When you try to establish just the foundational case of is there opportunity in the market? Is there more legal services to be delivered? I think the answer is an emphatic yes where you look at the $450 billion a year legal market in the US, and you do the math, you realize, wow, that $450 billion of legal spending is coming from the 23% of the market that can actually properly connect with a lawyer and use their services. That's just an enormous opportunity in my mind, where, where that implies that there's a trillion dollar plus opportunity for lawyers that can figure out, how do I tap into that new demand? To your question around why do lawyers have the opportunity uh, and why are they even being given the chance to uh, to compete in this space, it's just the fact that they've, they've got a cheat code. And the cheat code is that they're in a heavily <laughs> regulated industry where there isn't an opportunity like a Netflix or an Uber to come in and just... Or at least not as easily, right? Not as easily. Yeah. And, and look, there's lots of the shores of the legal industry are, are ripe with the wreckages of <laughs> ships like, like Atrium that have tried to disrupt this model and, right. uh, and, and failed. So I really think that at least for some period of time, this may be a fixed amount of time, but for some amount of time, lawyers have the opportunity to be the innovators. And any lawyer, even innovating in a small way, any lawyer moving in a small way toward this client-centered thinking, as, as I believe is the, the blueprint for driving this innovation, is going to be able to drive an unbelievable amount of differentiation for themselves in the industry. And, and that is truly what the, what the enormous opportunity is. And they can pull ahead of the pack and create a thriving law firm for themselves while, while everyone else in the industry is still practicing like it's, it's 1980. Mm -hmm. It's not hard to stand out right now. So one of the core concepts to your book is the flywheel, right? That's kind of the engine that drives everything behind how you apply this. So right. maybe you could introduce that concept because I think it's probably going to be new to some people that, that aren't reading the kinds of things where it came from and aren't familiar with the way that you've expanded on the idea. So maybe you can introduce us to it. Yeah. And I think the, the concept of flywheel is one of the more powerful concepts out there in the the business world that applies really strongly to a law firm as well. And I'll briefly describe the concept, which is, you know, number one, rooted in the, you know, the, a physical metaphor, which is for a flywheel in an engine. And, and, and there's obviously varying sizes of flywheels fall <laughs> from, you know, a few grams all the way up to 
20 foot wide flywheels that weigh uh, several tons. But the basic idea of a flywheel is it helps smooth out the motion of an, an engine. And as the energy and the momentum builds up in the flywheel, uh, as you add smaller and smaller amounts of energy uh, to the flywheel, it starts almost gaining its own momentum. Yeah, uh, it retains the energy that you've put into it over time, and and it's an energy battery almost. It's an energy yeah. battery exactly, and 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 the faster you get that flywheel going, the more almost self perpetuating that that momentum is. And the key thing is you can stop pushing at the flywheel for a few moments. And it's going to keep going with with almost the same velocity. I think I remember when you introduced this concept to me, at least, you were also talking about some of the disadvantages of thinking about things like funnels, for example. Like the funnel does not have any momentum. If you're not dropping things into the top of the funnel, nothing comes out the bottom. That's exactly right. And, you know, the, the funnel, I, I think there's a lot of people that think about law firm growth in an almost transactional model. Mm-hmm. Like I'll go buy a bunch of leads from Google AdWords. Sure, you'll convert those leads or some of those leads into clients, but without thinking about the flywheel, you're just going to go have to spend all that money back at Google again next month to generate your business that month. And what Jim Collins uh, in in the book Good to Great uh, used this, introduced this concept of the flywheel. He was talking about you know, Amazon, mm-hmm. and and he applied this this concept to Amazon and actually talked to Jeff Bezos about it and helped Jeff Bezos realize that. One of the most powerful things Amazon has going for it is a flywheel effect in its business. And the flywheel at Amazon is make it as easy as possible for consumers to buy things on the internet, make it as fast as possible for them to get those goods, and make those goods as as cheap as possible. And that will help drive a growth engine where they're able to create more and more selection in the marketplace. And you might remember back in the day, ironically enough, Amazon started off selling paper books like uh, like yours and like mine and has right. now expanded to more or less selling everything. Uh, you, so you, you increase that selection, you're going to drive more and more consumers to the marketplace. You're in turn going to drive more and more suppliers to the marketplace because that's where all the consumers are. That is going to help you create scale, which is going to help you further lower prices, which is going to draw more consumers, which is going to drive more suppliers and so on and so forth. And you think about that, that's the flywheel that has now helped. Each of those things is pushing on the flywheel. That's exactly right. And and they reinforce each other. And you have this, this self-reinforcing cycle of, of growth that has now helped Amazon grow to, you know, one of, one of the most valuable companies on the planet. Uh, and, and you also, when you realize the dynamics of the flywheel, you realize how truly unstoppable they are. Yeah. How does anybody go up against Amazon today? And I think the answer is truly you can't. <laughs> yeah. Now, how does this apply to a law firm? It's going to take a long... It, I like thinking about it as um, as a bunch of kids on a merry-go-round, actually, yes. <laughs> um, where each thing is is pushing. So I want to talk about how it applies to the law firm, but we have to take a quick, quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we will talk through that. So we'll be right back. Sounds great. Part of building a successful practice is finding the right payment partner. It's important to work with a processor that understands the complex rules for legal payments. LawPay is the only payment solution that ensures trust account compliance for both credit card and e-check transactions. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program and all 50 state bars, LawPay. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com lawyerist today. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. 
Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm, even when you're out of the office. Visit www.backofficebettys.com slash lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. Boost your productivity and save time typing with Text Expander. You can make your own snippets or share and manage snippets for your organization, even if your team works from home. You'll reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander can save you so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Okay, we're back. So, Jack, we left off with the big teaser of, okay, we talked about the Amazon flywheel, which is great and all, but, like, how how does that apply for a law firm? And you framed this in kind of um, the five values of a client-centered firm, um, which, as I said, I would like to say each of those values is a kid on a merry-go-round who's occasionally leaning down and giving it a push. Exactly. And and I, I think the at, at a really high level, when we look think about this this flywheel for uh, for law firms, just like Amazon that initially and still focuses relentlessly on the client experience and is is client-centered in the way it designs everything they do at Amazon, mm-hmm. the first component of the law firm flywheel is being client-centered and thinking almost about the outcome of your legal engagement before anything else. And that outcome should be a client that is a net promoter, a client that will come back to you if they need your services in the future that will refer other clients to you when they when they talk to somebody uh, that needs the kinds of legal services you deliver and somebody that will go out and give you positive reviews on the uh, on the internet whether that's on Avo or Google or uh, any of the other services that somebody might leave a review for you on and and the truth is that that will help you draw more future clients from that one client that left as a promoter from their interaction with your law firm. And that's what the flywheel looks like for law firms is this, this self-reinforcing mm-hmm. cycle of satisfied, happy clients referring more clients coming in from the internet, uh, from these, these positive reviews that are left online. And that's the kind of thing that creates compounding growth for law firms that, that again, you don't need to go out and buy that lead off of Google for a thousand bucks anymore. You can count on, this momentum you've created through building your own law firm flywheel. Which doesn't mean that Google Ads can't be a component of your strategy, but it can't be the only thing you want to... No, in, in, in fact, the Google Ads can be one of those things pushing on the flywheel, right? And you can really help right. prime the pump. And maybe in the first year of your strategic push on building your law firm flywheel, you need to prime that that flywheel and get the initial momentum going. Maybe you actually spend a large amount of money on Google AdWords mm-hmm. and getting those leads in and getting them into your law firm. But again, rather than taking that transactional view of I'm going to you know, deliver my legal services to you and, and, and then I'm send you on your merry way, you're going to be really deliberate about that lead that came in from Google leaving uh, as somebody that will help drive future business for you through referrals, through repeat business, and through uh, positive online reviews. And then all of a sudden, at some point in your journey, you're going to be able to turn off the tap on those Google AdWords because you're you're too busy right. to handle the clients that are coming into you inbound. And the heart of this is almost the opposite of innovative, right? Like this is what people have been saying for years, just do a good job and the clients will come. Well, 
Um, yeah, as long as you you feed the the front end of it, and this that's always been kind of the missing piece is like, okay, so how do you get the first few clients to do a good job on? That's right. A strong referral network of happy, satisfied former clients is still in twenty twenty the strongest thing that you can have, and that's what drives it. That's absolutely true, and and the difference being that now and in the future, increasingly in the future, your clients are going to be finding you online. And it takes different things to make people happy in 2020 than it did in 2010. It takes very different things to to keep yeah. people happy. So to, to your point, I think that, uh, yeah, a lot of the fundamental tenets of what is driving uh, growth for law firms haven't changed here. It's always been the case that lawyers get much of their business from referrals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always been the case that, that at least uh, many practice areas uh, see repeat business that helps drive their growth. But what has truly shifted is client expectations and how do you deliver an experience that helps helps make sure the client is leaving truly satisfied with the legal services you delivered and how you delivered them, which I think is is really what's changed uh, in, in the year 2020 and, and what will continue to almost accelerate in the rate it's changing in the future. So let's talk about what that is. What does a firm need to do? And, and I think this is where we dive into the five values, right? The first of which is, and maybe the biggest of which is, Empathy. Yeah, a hundred percent. So when when we talk about the the five values in the the client centered law firm, I outlined five values that I think are are central to how you deliver legal services in a way that uh, does line up with these rapidly changing client expectations. And I think this is at the heart of what is 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 driving this rallying call. I, I think for law firms, which is client expectations have shifted they're continuing to shift and as we as we've seen in in a, much of the data we've published in the legal trends report lawyers guessing at what their clients want is is actually a, a, a wildly <laughs> unsuccessful exercise lawyers are bad at guessing lawyers are bad at guessing and when you look at the raw data we have on what do lawyers think their clients expect and what do their clients actually expect those are those are two radically different things. Give us some examples because you've got some amazing data on this. Yeah, I, I think one one simple example is just how do clients want to initially interact with you when they're learning the details of the case? And when we surveyed lawyers on this question, the vast majority of them told us it's a telephone call. We can just jump on the phone and talk about the, the details of the case. And on, on the flip side, the clients, when we surveyed them, again, the vast majority said that this is an in-person discussion. And I'd like to talk to my lawyer face to face about this. And, you know, I, I think that it's a good example of where there's there's a huge chasm between lawyers and clients. And it comes down to, you know, some of those more profound moments, like how do you interact with your your lawyer when you're learning about your case? And it, it's also some cases very tactical, like do you allow your clients to text message you? Mm-hmm. Uh, the clients of your, the, the future are very much going to want to and, and do expect real-time responsiveness from you. And you need to start rowing towards those shifted expectations. Uh, one of the, I, I think, foundational ideas in the book is that we're seeing this, this consumerization of legal services in the same way that we saw the consumerization of IT uh, a decade ago, where clients that are used to dealing with uh, services like Uber and Netflix and Airbnb when they're used to uh, the the convenience of of Amazon, when they're used to doing 99% of everything they need to do on their mobile device, when they go to a lawyer's website and the the main call to action is, thanks for visiting my website, call me on this phone number. <laughs> yeah, That's so out of step, I think, with what the, the modern consumer is looking for. They're looking for 
a chat bot, for example, that they can start interacting with or, uh, you know, some way of doing online intake and scheduling a meeting with uh, the lawyer for an intake consultation online. Uh, they're not expecting to be asked to do this, this channel switch. So right. the fundamental thesis of the book is consumer expectations are shifting radically and the companies and the law firms that will thrive in the, the 21st century will be the ones that, that are truly client-centered in the way that they, they think about things. Thinking about it and respecting your client's wishes. and Exactly. Yeah. And I, I know you asked me to kind of outline the, the five values of the, the client-centered law firm in the, in the book that are, are kind of the playbook for how do you approach uh, from a law firm level building this, this client-centered law firm. And the first value is, is really about building deep client empathy. And I think that the the concept of client empathy is is so important because it's it's number one, I think, one of the underutilized skills that lawyers could deploy in the way they approach their their legal engagements. And many, many don't. Again, I, I think many lawyers mm-hmm. look at their work as being heavily transactional and you know, thanks for let's let's use a will as an example. I think many lawyers, you know, see a, a client come in. The client asks for a will, they do an interview, they produce the will, and they they send them on their way. Right. And the truth is that if you have deep client empathy and you really try to put yourself in your client's shoes, they're actually looking for peace of mind. You know, what they're looking for is, is peace of mind that their family is going to be taken care of after they pass away. They're going to want to make sure that their financial resources are are secure and able to be accessed by their their family and 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 so on. So there's this this deep emotional state that some clients are going to be in when they're they're looking for a will. That if you just really put yourself in their shoes, if you help them appreciate the wider context that they they might be in, and, and maybe there's other services or other things they should be thinking about when they're looking for a will, that's an opportunity for a lawyer to to engage in uh, in a truly unique way, and also take advantage of the fact that. An opportunity to build empathy is really around building, understanding the patterns that you see in the clients you work with. So, you know, a client, when you're working with them, it's probably the first time that they've gotten their will done. Right. They don't understand what the broader ramifications might be and what else they should be thinking about and what they maybe should anticipate as potential issues. Whereas as a lawyer, this is probably, you know, the one of dozens or hundreds or maybe thousands of wills you've done and interviews you've done and so on. So there's a huge opportunity to bring that expertise to bear on your client, but you need to talk to them and understand what's unique about their particular circumstances. It's funny. One of the first exercises that we have lawyers do when they come into one of our programs is interviewing their former clients or the, and their current clients. And lawyers are terrified of this, which I think is interesting. It's so true. I think that Interviewing former clients, I can see being something that's terrifying because they're even scared of asking their clients for NPS for their net promoter score. You know, I was I was interested, right? Uh, you know, when I've given a talk about uh, NPS and the importance of of net promoter score and measuring your client satisfaction and likelihood to recommend, the reaction with lawyers is really surprising. Where I ask who's who's ever asked their clients how they felt about the legal services you delivered and, and how you delivered them. And almost no hands go up in the room. You know, just that this, <laughs> right. I, this idea that that you would, uh, you know, ask your client for feedback of any kind is is 
uh, anathema to most lawyers. And I well, because I think it feeds into this idea that like we know best, right? Because that's how lawyers approach a hundred percent. Yeah, like it's it's a very paternalistic. No, no, no. We're going to tell you what you need. Yeah. Rather than listen to what you want. I think the root fear is do you almost show vulnerability or uncertainty asking your clients that question? Right. So a big leap here, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, you can't guess how your clients feel. You can't guess what they need and you can't guess what they want. And when you try to guess as outlined, you know, (laughs) categorically by the legal trends report, you guess wrong. Uh, You need to ask your clients that question. And you're 100% right. That exercise of talking to your former clients is 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 one of the ideas that I go you know pretty deep on in the book in terms of how do you implement this playbook? How do you build empathy, and how do you you start iterating on your firm, becoming a, a more client centered firm? This is just one of the five things that you've outlined, but it really is foundational, right? Because the way you approach things like your attentiveness and your communication and your the experiences you're trying to create all really depend on your understanding of your clients. Yes, yeah. and if you if you boiled the book down to you know, one of the most foundational concepts, it, it is this concept of empathy, leveraging empathy and being vulnerable enough to ask your former clients how you did and how you can improve. Yeah, it's, it's a simple question. Um, so maybe we can briefly run through um, the next three, which, um, or, or maybe not, maybe that's not a brief conversation, but we can touch on what it means to be an attentive lawyer in the relationship and what communication needs to look like and what it means to create effortless experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So so let me run through, you know, at a high level, the next few valleys I outline in the book. Yeah. I mean, you've literally wrote the book on this, so <laughs> if people want to go deep, they can read that. So, so no, number one <laughs> is is practicing attentiveness. And this is really uh, almost ties in very closely with this concept of empathy is you get empathy by being attentive and listening to your client in a really present and attentive way. And again, I, I think the to your comment around, I know best, there's many lawyers that almost want to fast forward to the conclusion and, and want to tell the client what the solution is before they've even fully articulated what the what the problem might be. Um, so it's a tool for building that empathy and it's a tool for showing your client that you know how to listen, you know how to ask questions, you know how to how to dig and and be good at at active listening and mm-hmm. and hearing their problems. And that builds trust, which is also really foundational to a a client-centered law firm. You know, the the third value is generating ease with communications, which touches on a, a few concepts. I think number one, many and in fact, many of the ethical complaints that that lawyers face, it's, it's, it's certainly in the top three along with... Right around communication. Exactly. Yeah. Mishandling trust accounts and mislimitation dates are are second only to client communication issues. It's, it's, it's ironic because it's one of the easiest things to get right. And, and yet, uh, you know, many lawyers are, are pretty poor at it. So think about how do you communicate with your client over the course of the case? What's your default operating tempo for working with your clients and giving them updates on a case. There's many lawyers that I believe incorrectly believe that if, if there's not, nothing's happened on the case, there's no need to give an update. And again, if you're empathetic to your client, you realize that they're probably really anxious about what's going on with their case. And even if your mm-hmm. update is, there's no update, I'm still waiting for a response from the judge or whatever the case might be, that generates ease on your client's case. I also talk about creating effortless experiences. And you've heard me go on and on about this. And you've got an amazing keynote, which I guess we should link to that people can see online from, I don't know, three, four years ago about 
why surprise and delight only gets you so far and the rest is about being effortless. That's right. And and yeah, I think it'd be great to throw that keynote in the show notes. And I yeah. I go into uh, some depth about this in the in, in the book as well around just how important it is to think about those touch points that create effortless experiences. And again, go back to the initial contact point your client has with you. How do you do online intake? Are you asking your client to phone you to do the initial intake? If your clients want text messaging, for example, are you delivering that to them? It's about choice, right? It's about not deciding what you know is best, but because like I have my own preferences and you might have different preferences. Older clients and younger clients might tend to have different preferences. It's just all about being able to communicate in the way people want, I think, right? That's 100% it. And, and it's just another reflection of being empathetic. You know, understand your clients' needs, understand how they want to be communicated with, understand that for almost every practice area, you're going to have a, a highly diverse set of needs and expectations on that front. And by the way, I, I know a lot of the ideas in this book sound heady, and, and some lawyers might, might think like, oh, this just sounds like too much. I don't have time to implement any of these ideas. <laughs> and, 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 and look, generating effortless experiences and, and starting to turn that flywheel can sometimes be really simple, tactical stuff. It can be provide an option for e-signature uh, if your clients want it. And for me, Putting a wet signature on a document these days feels like the most painful thing that anybody could ask me to, <laughs> to, to do. Yeah. Um, on the subject of how hard it is to do this, though, like I'm remembering a piece of a part of your the trends report from your presentation from this last ClioCog conference last fall, where you pointed out that the difference between firms that were growing and either stagnant or shrinking is one percent a month. That's right, and that's so like all you have to do is get one percent better every 30 days and that can't you could you could get one percent better every day if you really wanted to but you only have to do it every 30 days that's it and it's it's the uh this this concept of the the aggregation of marginal gains which is a, a really powerful mm -hmm. one where you know it's one of the places you can compound your investment in a really incremental way and, and you talked about improving one percent every day if you improved something about how you run your law firm or deliver your client experiences by 1% every day, and you did that for a year, at the end of a year, your law firm would be 37 times better. Yeah. And that's just the, you know, the miracle of compounding that we all learned in elementary school. But you, you, you look at it and you realize like, holy smokes, like this is not a boil the ocean thing. This is not something you should try to deploy, you know, all at once uh, and, and, and stop running your law firm for a month while you refit it and, and redesign it to be client-centered. You think about deploying this on an incremental basis over time, and you'll be able to have profound impacts. And like I said, many of the changes you can do to evolve in that direction can be very small things like text messaging your clients, for example, maybe accepting credit cards and realizing that writing a check at the end of your engagement is actually a very friction-filled experience for your clients, and, and they will greatly appreciate you. Uh, offering a credit card <laughs> payment, offering the opportunity to pay you in installments with a payment plan. These are all the the really simple things you can deploy into your law firm to become client-centered. And, and the final value, the fifth value that I outline in the book. Yeah, and this is kind of like the wrap-up value, right? The takeaway. Yeah, and it's it's such an important component of this flywheel that I talk about as well, which is creating clients for life. And this idea that there's so much opportunity left on the table by the way that an average law firm runs their their business. And I'll 
I, I think a wills and estates lawyer is another great example. When I when I went to get my first will done, I think I was 20 years old. I got the will done. You know, it was very transactional. I went into the lawyer's office. He gave me an envelope with my my will, and he he sent me on my merry way. And I I literally never heard from him again. And yeah. if you think about a will, when you get empathetic with your client's needs, you realize that what they're looking for is not that that transactional thing that they came in for, which was a document in an envelope right. that they can somebody can open up in the case that you die unexpectedly. The thing they're looking for is peace of mind. And if you're truly empathetic to that, what my lawyer should have done in that case is is really engaged with me and said, you know, here's your first will, Jack, and I'll check in with you every year until you die to <laughs> see if anything's changed in your life. And, and if they, so, so look at that, that will from when I was 20 to today, and I've gotten married, I've had three kids, I've founded a company, a, a lot has changed in my life. Right. You probably need a change. And I'm guessing you didn't go back to the same lawyer. Yeah, the will probably needs updated. So, you know, and I think this opportunity exists for so many practice areas, but how do you stay in touch with your clients and not only help generate more business for yourself as a side effect, but how do you show them that you're in their court and you're you're, you're there to help and you're, you're there to help them grow? And I, I think that can be on the communication level. It can be something as simple as saying, hey, I'm going to set up, a, whether it's a, a, a cadencing schedule that you set up in, in Outlook or whether you subscribe to something as sophisticated as one of these email nurturing tools that can do this automatically. Mm -hmm. But how are you keeping in touch with your clients and seeing what's going on with them? Uh, and, and it can actually go much deeper than that. If, if I was launching a new wills and estates law firm and truly embracing this, this client-centered law firm concept, I'd realize maybe that maybe charging 500 or 1000 bucks for a will upfront as a one-time transaction is not actually the right business model. Maybe there's an opportunity to really understand that peace of mind is an ongoing thing that changes every day, every month, every year for, for a client as their needs evolve and as their life changes. Maybe it should be a subscription service. Maybe this could be uh, a $100 a year service where you say, I'll write your initial will and also update your will once a year, every year, based on your constantly evolving personal situation. And I, I think the really important takeaway from the way that you've developed that in your book and and the right way to do this is like the innovation isn't you're not trying to talk anybody into offering a subscription what you're advocating for is understanding what your clients need and then trying to fit the service that you offer into what they need and want that, that's right and and that's different right like the question should i deliver subscriptions or flat fees or or hourly fees or whatever those are all the wrong questions the right question is what do my clients need and want and what will be most compelling for them and most valuable to them and then build that exactly and and you know jeff bezos once made the comment if you if you work backward from the customer everything else follows naturally and i think the same mm -hmm. thing applies in law if you work backward from that that customer that comes in saying i need a will can you get it done for me in the next 48 hours and actually get deep with their needs, you understand their needs, and then work backward from there and realize all these ideas, like maybe a subscription could work, maybe maybe I could be really innovative in terms of how I deliver my legal services. That is what will not only make for a very satisfied client at the end of the interaction, but in terms of tapping into this, this what I described as this latent legal opportunity, the 77% the mm -hmm. of the market that doesn't see its needs addressed by lawyers, one of the huge reasons that that chasm exists is that 
the business model that lawyers have traditionally deployed just does not work for these consumers. Right. And if you look at people like like Aaron Levine, for example, that have done an incredible job with with Hello Divorce, she's tapped into a, a whole new market that would have never been able to afford a traditional divorce process. And, and one of the central ideas in the book, and the reason I talk about being client-centered or versus client first. Yeah, that was a great discussion that you introduced in the book, which we haven't even touched on, is the difference between client first and client center. I, I think yeah. we'll have to have a part two of the podcast, <laughs> Sam. But, <Yeah. laughs> but in, a, in a nutshell, the idea here is there's no trade-off. This isn't a zero-sum game. This can actually be something that's better for everyone and a true win-win-win. Mm-hmm. When you look at what Erin's done with Hello Divorce, she's got lawyers working for her that are are making more money than they've ever made in their their lives delivering legal services on a case by case basis that are the most affordable and most accessible than they've they've ever been mm-hmm. and to me that that's an amazing example of of how this can be a true win 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 where we're we're helping our clients thrive we're helping them see justice and we're helping them you know, in the case of, of Aaron's business, get out of, of, of relationships that they shouldn't be in and, and maybe maybe wouldn't have been able to ever get out of in the more traditional way that divorces are right. are delivered. You're seeing Aaron and her lawyers uh, thrive from a financial perspective, and we're, we're, we're increasing access to, to justice all at the same time. So this is really, I think, a profound idea, although it might on the surface sound trivial almost, this idea of being really client-centered and working backward from that in terms of how do we truly transform the way we're delivering legal services, I, I think it's actually in service of, you know, a much bigger mission. And, 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 and back to this, this example of creating clients for life and thinking about the way you deliver legal services. Again, the, the Wills example, the $100 a year plan is now instantly way more accessible to consumers than a $1,000 upfront one-time will. Right. And, and by the way, you're probably going to, in the long term, when we think about lifetime value of a client, that subscription model will ultimately generate more revenue for you as a lawyer over time. And, and another great example I outlined in the book is Kimberly Bennett, who uh, is a, an IP lawyer and a, uh, a business strategist. And she's now built up her practice to the point where 75% of her monthly revenues come through subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't need to go out and spend that money on Google AdWords and she doesn't need to go out and win net new business every month. She's mostly taken care of just through this this subscription revenue. And again, it's not a fit for every practice area, it's not a fit for every lawyer, but it's just an example of one of the more extreme ways you can think about delivering your your legal services, but as I mentioned earlier and as I I go deeper on the book, you can make really small changes along the way in terms of how you're running your law firm and and evolve to being a more client-centered law firm. And you'll start reaping the rewards of that as soon as you start making those investments. I think that's a really nice way to wrap up. Jack, thank you so much. Um, we'll throw a link to your book and the Legal Trends Report, um, and I'll try and figure out which year you delivered that great keynote on effortless experiences, and I'll throw that link in there too. So thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. It was great being here. Look forward to uh, continuing the conversation at some point. The Lawyer's Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Chris Melrose. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. 
Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com community to schedule a 15 minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.